All right, sound is speeding. We are recording. Cool. All right, let's begin. Either they don't know, don't show, I don't care about what's going on in the hood. God, everybody. Wow. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Adventures in Black Cinema, your passport to black film. My name is Desmond Thorne. I will be your host and your film aficionado for the day. And I'm saying wow and just am kind of in awe because this is our 20th fucking episode. I feel like I've been on this journey with y'all for like a couple months and also in some ways it feels like a couple years but oh my gosh I've just been so grateful for this experience to talk to y'all about black film it just feels very special and again as always thank you and shout out to the team behind the pod um, we have Matt Mozzarella who is our audio engineer we have our producer Angie we have our producer's assistant, Trinika, who is new to the team. And we also have, of course, our executive producer, Miss Amanda Seals. And thank you to y'all as well for being passengers on this ride with me and on all of these journeys. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And if you've been listening to the show, you know this episode has been coming. It's been in the making. It's been in the works. As y'all know, I have spent the summer and the beginning of the fall reading the autobiography of Malcolm X written by Malcolm X and Alex Haley. So on this 20th episode of Adventure in Black Cinema. Our adventure today will be in leadership and legacy, and we will be getting into the nitty-gritty of the 1992 narrative film directed by Spike Lee called Malcolm X, as well as kind of dipping our toes in to the documentary Malcolm X that was released in 1972 and was directed by Arnold Pearl. But first, before we get into our double helping of Malcolm X, let's do a little trust and believe. Now come on, I got to go. So if it's your first time at Adventures in Black Cinema, or if you've never had a chance to listen to an episode with a trust and believe in it, Trust and Believe is a segment in which I will put y'all onto a hidden gem in black film. This will sometimes be an indie film or, you know, a film that didn't really get the same amount of press as some of these more popular films that we talk about on the show. Sometimes I get into the nitty gritty of these films and sometimes I'll just kind of like recommend them on a bit of a a bit of a lighter sense uh, in this segment, Trust and Believe. So this week's Trust and Believe is a film called Time. 
Time is a documentary that was released this year, and it tells the incredible story of just one of the most, one of the strongest people that I think I've ever seen, uh, period. This woman that the documentary follows, her name is Sybil Fox Richardson, and we follow uh, Fox, as she is mostly referred to. Uh, We follow Fox on her journey and her fight to get her husband, Rob, uh, released from prison. Rob is serving a 60-year sentence for armed robbery that Fox uh, did with him. And Fox served a a three-and-a-half-year sentence. And uh, we're talking about, you know, we are now in 2020. And um, what this film does so beautifully is not only have all this footage of the present that's absolutely beautifully shot, where you see Fox and where she is in her fight now. And, you know, over time, Fox has become an author, an entrepreneur, a modern-day abolitionist, as she's not only fighting for her husband's release, but for other Black men who have unjustly long sentences for nonviolent crimes. Success is the best revenge. Success is the best revenge. You're gonna show them that they can't treat human life this way. Success is the best revenge. Just hang in there, because when you get them home, they're gonna pay, they're gonna pay, they're gonna pay. I knew that if it was gonna be, it was gonna be totally up to me. This film combines that present footage with this really beautiful and just moving uh, home video footage that Fox has provided to the filmmaker whose name is Garrett Bradley. Um, it's just such a beautiful, such a beautifully composed documentary. Again, like I said, very moving, very informative. Um, I think when we're talking about, you know, leadership and legacy in this episode, as we get into this Malcolm X material, Fox is absolutely 100% a person who I think is a modern day leader who will leave a legacy. And this documentary is such a huge and important, um, part of that legacy that she already is leaving behind and will continue to leave behind with her work. Um, And there's also an interesting connection in terms of talking about these longer sentences that Black men get um, for nonviolent crimes. This does also happen to Malcolm X and his friend Shorty. And um, they uh, they were robbing someone And they were robbing someone with another guy who got away, as well as these two white women who they were both dating at the time. And the white women get just a sentence that is so, so short and minuscule compared to the sentence that Malcolm and Shorty get. So I also saw that connection between this material as well as Malcolm X. Um, And also... It should be noted that Garrett Bradley is another person who I think will definitely leave a legacy behind as a filmmaker. Garrett Bradley is the woman who directed this documentary. Um, And 
she is the first black woman to win the directing award in the U.S. documentary competition at Sundance for this film earlier this year. And, you know, um, yeah, this documentary will definitely take you a minute to process. There's a lot of information coming at you in a way that is very trusting um, and doesn't hit you over the head with a lot of things. Um, and it's in a short amount of time as well. Uh, you can definitely watch this film at any time on Amazon Prime Video. It is a film that was, I believe, purchased by Amazon at Sundance, so it'll be on there forever. But don't wait forever to check it out. Check out time. It's, you know, it really left an impact on me, and I... Can't wait to see more from Garrett Bradley as a filmmaker. And I can't wait to see more from Fox Richardson as one of our leaders. So uh, check that one out. You are here for one reason. One reason only. To learn. To learn. To learn. Yes. So let's get into the nitty gritty of Malcolm X. Times two, we doing double duty today. Very exciting for our 20th episode. So here's a little summary of both of these films, uh, if you're not familiar with them. Uh, Malcolm X, directed by Spike Lee, which was released in 1992, is the legendary adaptation of the legendary autobiography of Malcolm X, co-written by Malcolm and Alex Haley. Uh, The film tells the story of the infamous leader's life as well as the legacy that he has left behind. Malcolm X is played to perfection by Denzel Washington. Um, His wife, sister Betty Shabazz, is played by Angela Bassett. And the cast is filled out by Albert Hall, who plays this made-up composite character, a combination of... um, a man who Malcolm met in prison who introduced him to the Nation of Islam and also um, a a combination of this person and as well as his brother who also joined the Nation of Islam and who ended up being a big-time backstabber. So this is a made-up character, a combination of the two. Um, We'll talk about this character later. Um, The rest of the people in the cast include Al Freeman Jr., Delroy Lindo, Spike Lee, uh, Teresa Randall, and Lana McKee, who are both in Jungle Fever, and it's lovely to see both of them in this movie. And there are lots of cameos in this movie. Lots and lots of cameos from people including Christopher Plummer, Giancarlo Esposito, Roger Gunnivor Smith, Debbie Mazur, Mary Alice, and Wendell Pierce, who is in a little fucking show that I think that you all know called The Wire. Yes, yes. What we have here in this film called Malcolm X is a nigger from The Wire. So this continues to prove my point that at least 75% of all black films will feature at least one nigger from the wire. And this film continues to prove my point. So um, yeah, I get giddy about that. I get really happy when that point gets 
continue to be proven. Uh, Wendell Pierce and Giancarlo Esposito play two of the people who assassinate Malcolm X. They get to, I think, both say some version of, get your hand out of my pocket. Assalamu alaikum. The documentary, also called Malcolm X, uh, was directed by Arnold Pearl and was released in 1972, so released 20 years pretty much exactly before the Malcolm X narrative film. And um, this is also an adaptation of the Malcolm X autobiography, Uh, incredible, incredible, just very well done, very well stitched together of lots of footage from Malcolm's speeches, as well as narration from James Earl Jones of pieces from the book. Um, There's also some really cool photographs of Malcolm when he was super young, like in the zoot suit and everything. So like, this is also a very immersive portrait of Malcolm's life based on the amazing autobiography. And... These two films do have a lot of connections. And uh, speaking of some connections, let's go into some fun facts. So the first fun fact is that the screenplay was originally written by Arnold Pearl, who directed the documentary, and James Baldwin. Um, I think Arnold Pearl decided to make the documentary because the screenplay that they were working on um, was not being purchased or optioned by any studios. So Arnold Pearl took it upon himself to um, still make some sort of version of what he was working on based on the autobiography. So when Spike Lee came on board and started making revisions to the screenplay, James Baldwin's family wanted James Baldwin's name taken off the credits. So the screenplay credit for Malcolm X 1992 goes to Spike and Arnold. Um, James Baldwin's family is very protective over his work in general. And I'm not entirely sure, you know, the reasons behind them wanting to take his name off of this screenplay per se. But I mean, for example... The only reason the film If Bill Street Could Talk happened was because Brad Pitt's production company Plan B was producing the film. It wasn't because of Barry Jenkins and how amazing and beautiful Moonlight was. No, it was because they liked Brad Pitt. That's the reason why that movie was made. So they're very particular people. And, you know, it is a legacy that one should be protective of. So I get it. Um... When you gonna let somebody make Giovanni's Room, though? When you gonna let somebody make a Giovanni's Room movie? Just wondering. Uh, second fun fact about this film is that Warner Brothers wanted Norman Jewison, who is probably most well-known for directing the film In the Heat of the Night, to direct the Malcolm X film. But there was an outcry and protest that the director of this film should be black, which is absolutely correct. So Jewison backed out and admitted he couldn't bring what was needed to the project. Now, Arnold Pearl, who directed the Malcolm X documentary, he is white. Uh, He was white. He died a long time ago. Um, He was white, uh, but I don't know what entity possessed him or if he is just really one of the best ones that has ever been around because that documentary fucking slaps. And obviously Spike cosigns because there's a lot of similarities between the two that we'll get to and also the fact that, you know, they do take the screenwriting credit together. Um, 
Third fun fact is that Denzel Washington also played Malcolm X in an off-Broadway play called When the Chickens Come Home to Roost in 1981. Spike Lee saw this performance and uh, from then on, I think pretty much was the only actor Spike had in mind to play Malcolm in the film. And they had worked together before in Mo Betta Blues, so they had a working relationship and it's a magical relationship. So I'm so glad that, you know, everything worked out the way that it did. Um, So my first experience with this movie is that I had seen this film a lot growing up. Uh, It was very big in my household. You know, we had that double VHS with the big X on it. So this is definitely something that we were allowed to see. I mean, it was long, so it was like, you know, how, how much attention does a child have to watch this movie? But we watched it. Um, And I also saw it, over the years, bits and pieces, many times on TV and also in school. Um, It's always had a very big impact on me. I mean, this is just one of the most legendary films that we have in the Black community, and we'll talk about those reasons why. Um, But it was super fucking dope to watch this film after having read the book for the first time. Um, Just... There's just so much in there, and there's even more appreciation for what everybody did to bring this book and this uh, life to the screen. Um, It is quite, quite amazing. And, you know, speaking of, something that my parents used to say all the time after... um, seeing the movie, when they first saw the movie in theater, something that they would always say and repeat is that, you know, when they first saw the movie, they forgot that they weren't actually watching Malcolm X. They forgot that Denzel wasn't actually Malcolm X. And seeing the archival footage at the end of the film of the real Malcolm was almost shocking to them to remember that you weren't actually watching him. Um, Another little fun fact, I guess, and very smart filmmaking choice on Spike's part is that after Denzel is shot in the film, you therefore after only see archival footage of the actual Malcolm X. And I think that's really smart. It's kind of like, you know, almost like it almost feels like a ceremony in a way. It's like the man who has portrayed Malcolm through the vessel, his job has been completed so now let's go and you know therefore pay reverence to the actual um the actual man himself so let's get into these aspects of leadership and legacy a little bit shall we so first of all it must be said that this adaptation And this performance are absolutely legendary. Just absolutely legendary. You know, um, the kind of care and finesse that Spike takes with this adaptation is very, very admirable. And, you know, I'm not sure um, how much work that he did after the James Baldwin and Arnold Pearl script was written, but I imagine it was still a lot of work, you know. Um, There's so much detail that he brings to life from this book that I honestly could really only imagine because I was not alive at the time, and there's no, like footage of Malcolm X fucking like swing dancing and doing his thing which he talks about so much earlier in the book and it is astounding 
And when I saw that scene, I was like, we need to bring back coordinated dancing in the clubs. We need to bring back, like, not just things like the wobble, which are fun, and, you know, these coordinated square dances that we can do to pretty much any fucking song that are so good. No, like, coordinated fucking swing dancing. Everybody on point, flipping each other around. I want that. I want there to be a choreographer that comes into the club about an hour before the music starts, teaches everybody the dance, leaves, and then we can all get it because this scene is just absolutely astounding. It's so cool to see all of these details of Malcolm before he joined the nation, um, brought to life by Spike and his team. And speaking of his team, Ruth E. Carter with these fucking costumes. Ruth E. Carter, one of my favorite people working in the film industry, period, Jesus Christ, her costumes in this movie are so good. These zoot suits, zoot suits are something that I knew of and had maybe seen versions of over time, but I had not seen them like this and I did not imagine that they would be this way. These zoot suits, when you see Denzel and Spike, who plays uh, Malcolm X's friend Shorty, when you see them walking down the street together and doing this very specific walk in these zoot suits, these like boxy, baggy, but also like fly and bright and jazzy looking, it is it is absolutely astounding. Ruthie Carter um, got an Oscar nomination for this, as she damn well should have. Like, (laughs) when she said it was a long time coming when she won an Oscar for Black Panther, it was a long time fucking coming. Just brilliant work, Miss Ruthie Carter. Thank you, per usual. And speaking of Oscar nominations, one of the biggest grievances of Black film period, is that Denzel fucking Washington did not win an Oscar for playing this role. It is robbery. It is an insult to this man's talent. It is an insult to so many people that he did not win an Oscar for this role. Um, He absolutely nails every single fucking scene. And do you know how hard that is to do in a movie that is three hours and 22 minutes? Which means that... They shot even more than that. There's no way that this was just edited and then all of a sudden it was three hours and 22 minutes and that was it. No, he did so much more work. He's playing a real life person who is so revered by all of us in the black community. Um, He just fucking knocked it out of the park. Like, there's really not much more to be said than that this performance is absolutely perfect. There are no notes. A lot of people will nitpick and say he doesn't look much like Malcolm X. He's shorter. He's darker. I don't give a fuck. You see this Malcolm X documentary from 1972, and you see every single time that Malcolm X smiles him and Denzel have the same exact smile, and it is just absolutely insane. The, the way that 
Denzel really melded himself with Malcolm X to bring this role to life. It's not an imitation. It's a true channeling, as me and Tessa were saying in the Love and Basketball episode. Some actors act, some actors channel. Denzel Washington is channeling Malcolm X, and it is absolutely brilliant. And it's interesting that we're talking about leadership and legacy today, because I think that Spike and Denzel are also leaders in the Black community, especially in the entertainment industry, and they already have such a legacy ahead of them. They have just done such brilliant work. Um, are their filmographies perfect? No. And I think that's something that, you know, there's a lot of pressure put on Black artists to always be perfect and to always have this like perfect filmography, perfect everything. And that is not true of these two, and it does not have to be at all. I think the work that they have done has done so much for us and has provided us so much joy and so much enrichment over the years. So big ups to Spike and Denzel, you know, um, just amazing, brilliant work here. Um, So Spike puts a lot of his interesting and unique touches onto this film in adapting it. Um, One of the most interesting touches that I notice is this, these kind of like phantom gunshots that occur throughout the film and they occur uh, always toward Malcolm. It's kind of this interesting foreshadowing about, you know, his assassination and ending up dead. So these um, foreshadowings, they happen in a scene where um, Malcolm and Shorty are playing kind of like just playing fake guns in the park, you know, finger guns, etc. And uh, at the end of the scene, uh, you hear the sound of an actual gunshot from, you know, this fake playing around. And that's how the scene ends. And um, then there's also a scene where Malcolm is playing Russian roulette with uh, these two white women that him and Shorty are seeing. And this guy, played by Roger Gunnar Smith, who is joining them for a little night of armed robbery. Because Malcolm X used to do a lot of bad shit. He used to do a lot of bad things. He used to sell drugs. He used to, you know, do a lot of shit. And I think he is the perfect example of, like, you know, you have to start somewhere. People don't come out the way that you're destined to be all the time. You know, sometimes your destiny has to find you along the way. And there's another one of these phantom gunshots in this scene as well. And, of course, these being phantom gunshots, no one else hears them. No one else, you know, reacts to them except us. And it's such a brilliant touch. Again, great, uh, great foreshadowing. And, you know, most of the things that he does really works. So something else that I love that Spike Lee does in this film is that he, um, there's a woman that uh, Malcolm is seeing named Laura. She's a black woman. She's played by Teresa Randall. She's the lead in Girl 6. Um, and she's also in Jungle Fever, so it's great to see her in this. She's really, really great as Laura in this. And what essentially happens is that Malcolm is dating Laura, dancing with Laura, doing the whole thing with Laura, and then he meets this white woman named Sophia that he basically dumps Laura for, 
And what Malcolm says in the book is he deeply regrets um, doing that because Laura's life was very fucked up after that. And I think what Spike does so well is he he intercuts Laura's life into the movie. So you do see her demise kind of happen over time in a really interesting way just by, you know, chance encounters rather than it just being like a blip. Um, It makes such a big impact. And like I said, Teresa Randall is really, really great in these scenes. And there's also a scene where you see Laura and Malcolm is basically taking the route that Flipper does in Jungle Fever to get to the Taj Mahal. And essentially where Laura is, is like the Taj Mahal. It's the same place. So again, like I said in the Jungle Fever episode, these New York set Spike Lee movies have so many connections and I want to do a program of them all together. I want to see these connections. I think it's really fucking cool. Just like August Wilson's Pittsburgh Cycle. Spike Lee has a New York cycle. And I think that's something that he does super, super well is really charting Laura's story and giving it the space and time that it deserves. Like I said, this adaptation is, you know, very, very brilliant. I think some things that don't work as much um, is the chronology aspect. Like, that's something that I think... The documentary, I think, actually does a little better. Um, I think, you know, having the flashbacks of what happened to Malcolm's mom and Malcolm's dad and his siblings and everything, having them intercut, you know, since the movie is already going to be three hours and 22 minutes anyway, I think that just having that in the beginning after you kind of have the cold open and you go into a flashback anyway, I think just having a consistent kind of, you know, 15, 20 minutes at the beginning of the movie where you're just really getting the groundwork of Malcolm X because there's a certain connection that's made in the documentary that's really great. The connection being that, you know, Malcolm seeing all of these things happen to him and his family as uh, children, his father being killed by white people, his mother being institutionalized by white people, and then taken out of, uh, taken away from their mother by white people. And then, you know, Malcolm being told as a child by his teacher that he can't be a lawyer because niggers can't be lawyers. Like, is to be realistic. We all like you here, you know that. But you're a nigger, and a lawyer is no realistic goal for a nigger. But why didn't stop, Strowski? I guess the best grades in class. I got voted class president. I want to be a lawyer. Now, I want you to think about something that you can be. You're good with your hands. Making things. People would give you work. I would myself. Why don't you become a cop? That's a good profession for a color. And that's something that happens to a lot of us growing up that I'm not sure that a lot of people realize. Like, we aren't necessarily told as bluntly as that, but we're told in many various ways that we can't be what we want to be, that, you know, we can't reach for the stars. Those kinds of messages, you know, aren't for us. So this connection of seeing you know, all these white people do all this shit to him over the years, and including, you know, 
the uh, white women that he gets involved with early on. Um, so when Elijah Muhammad, when he starts to, when Malcolm starts to learn the teachings of Elijah Muhammad, this idea of white people being devils just absolutely clicks with him and it makes absolute perfect sense. And um, so, yeah, I think there is an aspect of that that is done very well in uh, the Spike Lee film, but I think for some reason hits even harder in the uh, Malcolm X documentary. Another thing that I like that the Malcolm X documentary does uh, better than the film is that you get to see his brother and his sister. One of his brothers, one of his sisters. He had many siblings. But you get to see um, you get to see his sister, Ella. And then you also get to see his brother, whose name is Louis, I believe, um, who ended up uh, being a traitor to his brother, which is, you know, very sad in terms of, you know, saying that, you know, maybe Malcolm himself set um, his own fucking house on fire to get attention because Malcolm eventually did speak out against Elijah Muhammad and the fact that he had slept with so many of his young, young secretaries and had so many kids and was not providing any support for these people. So, you know, once Malcolm goes against that, then you see um, his brother really go against him and really lead the charge um, to what led up to his death, honestly. And uh, something else that I love about the documentary that I had not honestly seen before, I don't think, is footage of Sister Betty. And when you see this footage of Sister Betty... You see how much Angela Bassett fucking nailed this performance. Of course, we do a lot of talking justifiably about how amazing Amazing. Denzel is as Malcolm X. And he is, you know, more well known in terms of uh, speech and cadence and movement and everything like that. Because he was the one up there giving speeches all the time. There's lots of video footage of him that you see all all the time. Um, But... Wow, Angela Bassett just absolutely nails Sister Betty's gentle yet strong-willed energy. It's so interesting. It's just really beautiful. Angela gives a very beautiful performance here. And it's interesting that Spike added um, confrontation for the two of them because according to Malcolm's book and according to Sister Betty, they never had any confrontations. Um, It just really wasn't their way. They just worked things out in other ways. Um, And um, it's also worth noting that Sister Betty signed off on both of these projects. I think she kind of liked the documentary a little more based on what I've read because she was like, you know, truly, truly, truly involved, I think, in a in a larger way with that project. Uh, her name is at the end credits. And I think what's also interesting about the two of these projects is that because Spike made the Malcolm X film 20 years later, I think he specifically didn't want to focus a lot on what the documentary focuses on. Um, but watching the two together, like... Malcolm X, the autobiography, Malcolm X, the documentary, and then Malcolm X, the narrative film. 
Uh, these are really the trifecta in terms of understanding exactly, you know, what was going on in his life and um, understanding a lot about, you know, what he wanted to get across, what his mission was. And, you know, unfortunately, uh, his downfall, his assassination. There are some speeches in the Malcolm X documentary, this one in particular called The the Pale Thing. We don't want to integrate with that old pale thing. We don't want to sleep next to that old pale thing. So we can do without it. You find that old pale thing laying out in the sun, trying to get to look like you. That is just incredible. I don't think I'd really heard it before. And the two work so well together. Um, There's a lot that if you have only seen the Malcolm X narrative film directed by Spike Lee, if you watch the documentary, there are some, you know, holes and gaps that Spike left out that Arnold Pearl does fill in from the book. Um... There's also, uh, when watching these films, there's a certain sense of unity presented in the films as well as the book that I definitely miss. And it's something that you don't necessarily see as much anymore, I want to say. I don't want to say that you don't see it ever, but you don't see it as much and you don't see it in the same way. Um, There's a beautiful moment in the film where... uh, Malcolm has pretty much just gotten out of prison kind of recently, and he's giving a speech on a stoop in Harlem, and the camera moves, and you see that there are two other people giving speeches, and it's Al Sharpton and Bobby Seale, and it's actually Al Sharpton and Bobby Seale. So there is a kind of unity just in the filmmaking and showing all these amazing leaders together, and oh man, it makes me imagine, like, what if something like that could have actually happened? You know, Malcolm X, Bobby Seale, and Al Sharpton really giving speeches together. And it's such a beautiful scene. It's almost like an orchestra of speeches. All these speeches kind of weaving in together and weaving on top of each other. And there's also a scene where uh, Malcolm and a bunch of people in Harlem are looking for this guy who's been beat up by the police and unjustly locked up. And they really unite and do a march like very quickly and very organized. And Malcolm is so unafraid of dealing with the police. There's a kind of bold, unfazed, brazen kind of energy that he had that I really miss. I think a lot of white society has done such a job of getting rid of these leaders 
and making a lot of Black people scared to have this kind of energy, you know? I mean, they definitely did that with Malcolm X, and something that's really interesting about the beginning of the Malcolm X documentary is that you see his by any means necessary speech intercut with a poem by the last poets, which is called Niggas Are Scared of Revolution. But niggas shouldn't be scared of revolution. All niggas. Because revolution is nothing but change. And all niggas do is change. Niggas come in for murder and change into pimping clothes. They're the streets to make some quick change. Niggas change their hair from black to red to blonde. And old black hair that looks will change. Niggas kill other niggas just because one didn't receive the correct change. Niggas change from men to women, from women to men. Niggas change, change, change. You hear niggas say, things are changing. And, you know, there is an aspect of truth to that because of, you know, all of the violence and the pushback that has happened over time when we do try to get together and, you know, start a revolution. But I don't know. We've got to still, I think that, you know, there are definitely people who are out here that are unsatisfied with performative justice and, you know, who are really trying to get justice for our people by any means necessary. And, you know, I think in the modern day, pretty much all the people that I can think of who fit that bill are women, are black women. One person who I can think of absolutely in particular is Tamika Mallory. Tamika Mallory is absolutely just, she's amazing. Every time I see her speak, I am just so moved and there's so much truth and there's so much power behind what she says. I don't give a damn if they burn down Target because Target should be on the streets with us calling for the justice that our people deserve. Where was AutoZone at the time when Philando Castile was shot in a car, which is what they actually represent? Where were they? So if you are not coming to the people's defense, then don't challenge us when young people and other people who are frustrated and instigated by the people you pay, you are paying instigators to be among our people out there, throwing rocks, breaking windows, and burning down buildings. And so young people are responding to that. They are enraged, and there's an easy way to stop it. Arrest the cops. Charge the cops. Charge all the cops. Not just some of them. Not just here in Minneapolis. Charge them in every city across America where our people are being murdered. And, um, you know, she's someone who gives out rallying cries. People who give out rallying cries. People who we can really, like, rally behind and really get behind and can encourage us and give us the courage to rally our fucking selves, you know? Like, it's just, it's just so needed. It's just so absolutely needed. And it's interesting that both of these films do start out with um, something that's happening in the modern time. So in the uh, Malcolm X Spike Lee film, we do start out with footage from Rodney King. We do start out with the Rodney King footage. Um, 
and the burning of the flag as well as uh, Malcolm X's speech behind that. And then, like I said, the beginning of the documentary is the By Any Means Necessary speech, along with footage of protests from the 70s and the poem by the last poets. Um, I think both of the films starting off this way are very important by saying that, you know, we're still fighting for this shit. And uh, Malcolm had such a big influence on where we are and how much further that we have to go, honestly, even now, even now. Um, And both films, um, you know, the assassination of Malcolm X is always heartbreaking. Um, I think it's part of the reason why it took so long to read the book because I knew what the ending was and I just didn't want it to end. Finding out even more and more about this man and about what he did and what he stood for, um, the minutia of everything, and, you know, seeing that his life was just so unjustly taken away and influenced by these white institutions, as well as the jealousy from, you know, the Nation of Islam. That was definitely a thing. But, you know, Malcolm said... There were certain things that were happening that he was convinced. It was like, he's it's not just the Nation of Islam anymore. Like, I train these people. I know what they're capable of. And they're starting to do some shit that they are, that's beyond their capabilities. So the FBI was definitely involved in this shit. And you definitely see um, that in the Malcolm X film, uh, the Spike Lee film. Uh, there's a scene where you see the FBI listening in and tapping in on Malcolm's phone when he's talking to his wife. And um, they're saying, oh, compared to Martin Luther King, this guy is like a monk. Um, So there's definitely, definitely FBI involvement because at the end of the day, and this is something that you see a lot of people say at the end of the documentary, Malcolm X, Um, when they're talking to people on the street and getting their reactions of him being assassinated, you see people saying like, oh, white people are definitely behind this because it does not benefit black people for this man to be dead, but it certainly benefits white society and the white society that does not want us to rise up because he was really getting us there. And that's why it's so heartbreaking. And I really wonder like what what it would be like if he was still around, um, you know? Um, you know, thankfully we have all of these things, all of this media to continue to soak up his legacy and continue to look back in order to find ways to move forward, I think is a really important thing. And I think um, I'm so glad that Alex Haley Arnold Pearl, James Baldwin, and Spike Lee have really, really, really done a great job at preserving this legacy so that we can always, always remind ourselves when we feel like we can't do shit that somebody did and his energy is still here, you know? (sighs) It just makes me sad. And uh, the ending of both films is actually pretty similar. The ending of both films... um, do uh, have the Ozzie Davis eulogy as um, voiceover. Here, at this final hour, in this quiet place, 
Harlem has come to bid farewell to one of its brightest hopes. Extinguished now and gone from us forever. It is not in the memory of man that this beleaguered, unfortunate, but nonetheless proud community has found a braver, more gallant young champion than this Afro-American who lies before us, unconquered still. And um, at the end of the documentary is when you see uh, footage of Malcolm's sister, Ella, which is so cool. It's so cool to see her. Ella is such a big part of the book that it kind of sucks that Spike uh, didn't have her in the movie. But I understand. I understand. I get it. You know, you got to pick and choose things. Um, But I love seeing her, even though she is, you know, talking about in reaction to her brother's death. So both films end with the Ozzie Davis eulogy. And something that I think is so special about the Malcolm X film directed by Spike Lee, is the scene of all the kids getting up in their classroom and saying, I am Malcolm X. Because that's what I'm saying. Like, that energy really does pervade today. And it's a really, such a beautiful way to end the film. Um, Definitely, again, heartbreaking and, like, makes me tear up a little bit. Fun fact, one of those kids in the classroom in America is John David Washington, who, of course, is Denzel Washington's son and a collaborator with Spike Lee on the film Black Klansman. Um, And the scene, the I Am Malcolm X's, go into South Africa, where you see Nelson Mandela himself, you know, um, giving the by any means necessary speech. But he apparently refused to say by any means necessary because I think, you know, Nelson Mandela being OD peaceful. Um, So Spike cut in the footage of Malcolm saying by any means necessary. And that's exactly how the documentary ends as well. Um, I think it's just how you end the story. It's just so beautiful. Uh, these movies are so good, y'all. If you haven't seen one or the other, just please, they're so good. So in conclusion, this is one of the few black epics that we have, really, you know, in terms of like these long movies about these important people. It's one of the few that we have, you know, it's so clear in so much of Spike's work including films like Do the Right Thing, you know, how much Malcolm X meant to him. And that comes through so incredibly well in this film. There is a love, a respect, and an honoring of this iconic leader. And this film ensures that his already strong legacy will not die. And the documentary does that as well. This film should have absolutely been nominated for Best Picture, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Director, Best Supporting Actress, and like I said, Denzel Washington should have hands down won Best Actor. I've seen fucking Scent of a Woman. I've seen Al Pacino in that movie. I think Al Pacino is a good actor, but he was not great in that movie at all. Should not have even been nominated for that movie. It's like not a great movie by any means, but Chris O'Donnell could get it. Um, (laughs) But back to Malcolm X, you know, this film is long. The book is long, but both are absolutely worth devouring, and so is the documentary, which actually gets a lot done in about an hour and 22 minutes. So, like, big ups to that, being able to do that. It's very impressive. And the film Malcolm X, 
1992 Spike Lee film is now streaming on HBO Max. All my life I had to fight. The time has come yet again for this week's You Better Act Award. If it is your first time at Adventures in Black Cinema, the You Better Act Award is an award that I give out every week to an absolutely slamming fucking performance that I want to celebrate and give praise to. And it's my show, and I can do what I want, and this is what I like to do. So, this week's You Better Act Award goes to, drumroll please... Kingsley Ben Adir in One Night in Miami. I previously talked about this movie, gave it a little preview in one of the previous episodes, and I finally saw it. I got to see it through the SCAD Savannah Film Festival. First of all, the film is excellent, and I am very excited to talk about it one day and get into the nitty-gritty of this film, but... Kingsley Ben-Adir playing Malcolm X in this film is absolutely astounding. This film gives us an opportunity to see Malcolm in a way that we have not seen him before on film, which is essentially, you know, him chilling and hanging out with his friends, you know, while obviously still being very much on mission with all of his principles and everything. But you see this vulnerable side of Malcolm X, um, you see him interacting with his family, his daughter, um, his friends, and it's just absolutely an incredible, astounding performance. You know, um, a lot of people, obviously, in portrayals of Malcolm X are going to want to compare uh, him with Denzel Washington and other people who have portrayed Malcolm X, but... This is just very different, uh, a very different approach than Denzel took, and also very different material. I think what Kingsley really nails here a lot is Malcolm's physicality. He looks a lot like him in terms of stature, not necessarily in his face, but um, he just absolutely captures all of his mannerisms, his cadence, his movements, It's just absolutely brilliant. And it must be said that everyone in this movie is brilliant. Um, Leslie Odom Jr. playing Sam Cooke. And his character has such a big payoff near the end of the film. And then uh, we also have Aldous Hodge playing Jim Brown, who's excellent as always. I want to marry you, Aldous Hodge. Um, uh, Come through. Find me. Uh, I'm very easy to find. And then also another huge standout in this film is Eli Gorey playing Cassius Clay. And um, yeah, I just really can't say enough about how much I enjoyed this film and I'm excited to talk about it in full one day. Um, so yeah, this one you will be able to see in January on Amazon Prime Video. So check it out then. And it'll also be in theaters at limited screenings uh, on Christmas. And uh, we'll see what that kind of looks like <laughs> as we near the date. Um, so in closing for the show today, some food for thought. I'm wondering from y'all, who are some modern black leaders who are really leading the charge these days and have that kind of Malcolm X-esque energy? Um, You know, 
hit us up on SFB Society, comment on our post on Instagram, and you can find us uh, at Adventures in Black Cinema. Remember to subscribe to us on Apple, follow us on Spotify, you know, wherever you find your podcast. Big ups and thank you again to our amazing, amazing team behind the podcast. 20 episodes. I cannot believe it. This is amazing. Uh, Thank you all so much. And uh, next week, I will be getting into the nitty gritty of the film Life with a wonderful, wonderful actor and writer, just a brilliant, talented guy named Sheldon Brown. And uh, I'm excited to get into that movie. I really like that movie. And that is streaming on HBO Max right now if you want to follow along with us. And, uh, you know, per usual, stay safe, stay black, stay blessed. I'll see y'all next week. Thank you. Great.